Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Going Up Cast, your weekly feel-good podcast. Where this week we talk about From Software's latest game, which got some gameplay stuff. Critical Role Season Three, Episode Three, a fucking phenomenal indie game that I got to play, uh, and other stuff that I'm blanking on. Yes, that's right. This week we talk about the Elden Ring gameplay release. There was like 15 minutes of footage, so we talk about that. Uh, Critical Role Season Three, Episode Three. I went camping over the weekend. Uh, and almost froze to death, so that was that was fun. Um, I say almost froze to death. That that sounds very uh, very incendiary, very clickbaity. I was fine. It snowed, no big deal. Um, but if you want to hear what happened, you can hang around for that. Uh, what the fuck? Oh, I also watched Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries. I know um, that came out a couple of years ago, and everybody's already moved on past that. I played Unboxing, which is this adorable little indie game. Um, and I think that's it. I think that's, that's all the. Owl House Season 2. First 10 episodes of Owl House Season 2. We'll talk about that as well uh, in this week's episode of The Going Upcast. And if you like The Going Upcast and want to support The Going Upcast, please feel free to visit goingupcast.com forward slash store where you can get access to movie commentary tracks. Currently, we have the first six Harry Potter movies up there as well as four quote-unquote Halloween movies. Halloween Town, Hocus Pocus, and then Batman The Long Halloween's Part 1 and 2. Um, the hope is that more will be uploaded here very soon. I mean, I recorded a bunch of them. Um, I'm saving the holiday ones for when it's, oh, I don't know, holiday time. So a couple of weeks. Um, but others will, will land on there. Uh, and it's it's all very well and good. And I want to give a quick note here. Um, I'm, I'm going to announce it in this podcast uh, because this is the, the, the 11th hour. Um, I am leaving my current place of employment and about to start working at a new place of employment. Um, and since it no longer matters, I will tell you where I used to work and not where I'm about to work because, uh, you know, even I have my limits on what I will share. Much like how you don't know, I don't know, my social security number or whatever. Um, I used to work at a place, I used to work. At the time of recording this, I'm still employed there. Um, and at the time this podcast goes up, I will continue to be employed there for another three days. Um, this upcoming Friday, when you guys hear this, if you're not, if you're listening to this later on, the 12th of November was my final day at Card Kingdom. Um, I, I do continuous improvement, which is very exciting. Uh, but I've worked at Card Kingdom basically out of college. And it is it is very fun and exciting to move on to a new place of, of work. I'm thrilled and stoked for uh, what I'll be doing up here pretty soon. It's going to be phenomenal. Um, but rest assured, no changes to my hobbies will occur. The podcast will still be a thing. Audiobooks will still be a thing. I will still yell at movies. It's going to be great. I'm just really excited, and it's it's a big step for me uh, professionally, uh, and it will just allow me to do a lot of great stuff that I want to do with my life. So I wanted to share, and I'm, I'm very, very, very happy about it. Um, just like how I'm happy with the quality of this week's podcast episode. This is, one of, this is a better one. I like this one. This is really good. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Let's get into it. long time ago we talked about a show called owl house which is if you're not aware of the show a truly remarkable show on disney plus right now about a uh young witch in training named Lucy noceta who uh, has found her way into the magical land of the boiling isles and adorable hijinks ensue the writing is incredibly snappy in this show it has some of the best LGBTQ plus representation I've ever seen in an animated show. Um, and the second season is being piecemeal released on Disney plus as we speak. And I have just watched the first 10 episodes of season two. Um, one thing I appreciate about season one to season two is that there is a very obvious growth in the characters. Luce's uh, voice is more mature and she is physically taller um, Gus is also more mature and physically taller. Basically, all of the characters si like significantly age between the first and the second season. Um, it also has some incredible uh, story arcs that carry over from the first to the second season, like most second seasons do. But I want to talk about a couple of things, kind of vague, um, and we can. We, and I'm just gonna leave it at that. I don't want to do like episode breakdowns because I feel like. This show really shines when you get, like, super into it. 
um, and that just requires you watching it. So I'll, I'll just say that I think Owl House is one of the best animated shows, especially out of Disney, in some time. I prefer this show to things like, like, I liked Gravity Falls. I think Owl House is better. Um, I liked Star versus the Faces of Evil. I think Owl House is better. It's, it is the, the pinnacle of this particular brand of, like, fantasy, like, kid animated show that Disney is so fond of. Which makes the fact that Disney has screwed this show a goddamn shame. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that. So, there's, there are a couple of episodes in season two that are kind of, there are some tropes, I will say. Um, but I think they're done well here. We get the trope of parents, um, but it's done on so many different levels. Because not only is Luce trying to get back to the human realm to see her mom, but King is on a, a mission to find out where he comes from. And then we meet Ida's folks, and then there's Amity's folks. So family is like the core of the show. It, it comes up in so many episodes in a lot of different ways. And it's not only like blood relative family, but it's the family you find along the way because Luce's like newfound family is Ida and King and Amity and Willow and Gus versus the family she has at home. Um, a lot of mysteries are answered in this season, um, including like what is the, uh, like who's responsible for writing the letters to uh, Luce's mom that we saw in season one and all of that stuff. Um, we meet a new character called the Golden Guard, who is your classic villain who's like kind of conflicted um, about their role in being a villain. They're not super conflicted, but there definitely has some elements of like uncertainty. And I think that's, that's really great. Um, we were introduced to a character who uh, was non-binary and was performed by a non-binary individual, and I thought that was fucking rad. Their name was Rain, and they were fantastic. Um, There's a, a good amount of time dedicated to battling inner demons. I mean, in this show's case, it was, it was literal inner demons, but it was still a nice uh, kind of plot thing to have. There's a solid character progression in the first 10 episodes, um, but the thing I want to talk about the most is uh, Luce and Amity's relationship. Um, uh, Luce Midi, I think is what, Luce Midi, I, I can't remember what it is uh, Amaluz, whatever you want to call it one thing I see a lot especially in shows of this nature is that the relationship will be acknowledged, maybe teased maybe hinted at over the course of the show and usually by the end of the show that's it and it's done probably one of the biggest examples of this would be Legend of Korra who confirmed Korra and Asami as the ending shot of the show. It is immediately picked up in the comic book. So if you're curious to see what actually happens next, you can read the comics. So the rest of the story exists in another medium, but I feel like that's always been the thing, right? If there's LGBTQ representation, it's teased at, it's kind of sort of built upon, but then it's always at the end of the show when it's like officially confirmed and we never spend any time developing the relationship and getting to know these characters as a unit. Now, on the flip side of that, these characters are so much more than their sexuality. Uh, and sexuality should never be used as a character type. It is part of a character, not the character. I've said that many times. Um, and I love this show for showing us Amity's character growth outside the relationship and having her and Luce's relationship develop over the course of the show. In the middle of season two, or at least in the middle of the beginning part of season two, they finally agreed to start dating and refer to themselves as girlfriends. So they are together during season two, not at the end of season two. And so future episodes, we will hopefully see more of their relationship. And I think that is really great. The only other show that comes even close to this is Harley Quinn. Uh, but again, as of right now, we ended season two with them finally getting together. So we don't have any real episodes of them being a couple. Um, and I know that's not the point of the show, but 
Like, I live for that shit. And so I'm so excited to see that there is at least potential for some some longevity. Um, we have another 11 episodes of season two to see. And then season three is the f- final season because Disney has completely shafted the show. And it's actually going to be col- told through like three specials, not a full third season, which is pretty donkey balling horse shit. I just hope that these characters and these stories exist in another format. Maybe we can get some comic books like Avatar or something like that. I think that'd be a really great avenue to continue telling stories with these characters because they are are incredibly well built. Season 2 is funny. Season 2 will make you cry. Season 2 will, will make you smile. It's, it's a really, really well put together show and it's telling an awesome story. And I feel like the writing of the show and the dialogue and the jokes are incredible incredibly on point and super snappy to the point that if I ever made a show I would track down these people who made this show to help me make my show because they've got such a great headspace and perception um and understanding of what it make what it takes to make a good character because it's so easy to fall back on tropes um like I like I mentioned there are a couple of episodes like uh like the whole parent thing and then there's like episodes of like getting hoodwinked and you know promises kept and broken and you can you can draw parallels uh, of pretty much everything in this show to another source or another medium but it doesn't matter because the characters are so well developed and the the writing is so much fun that it feels fresh and new with every trope that they utilize so it is it is truly a a special show and I will sign any petition anybody gives me to make the show continue. Um, it is it is awesome. So I would highly recommend it if you uh, if you have Disney Plus and are looking for a fun new thing to watch. Owl House is a Owl House will get that done. I I defy anybody to give that show a legitimate chance and not enjoy it. I think it'll be I think you'll enjoy the ride. Uh, but for now, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Let's talk about Elden Ring, the latest from software game coming out early next year from the creative mind of George R. R. Martin, uh, regardless of how some of his other things have grown. Um, it, we just got a 15 minute kind of look at the game, thanks to uh, GameSpot of all places. Um, and I watched it, obviously. The first thing that came into my head was that the jumping mechanic changes so goddamn much. And it's one of those things that you didn't really notice you didn't have it. Uh, cause you could jump, but it was like, it's different, you know? Um, you do like a running leap sort of thing and you would, you would land and do that. You couldn't just like jump up and down you know there was there were situational things where you could jump you could do jumping attacks you could you know do that sort of thing so there's always been the jump ability but not quite like this there's also mounts for the first time in the souls game which looks awesome um the kind of spectral particle magic effects of which there are several apparently not only the magic you cast but the magic cast by enemies as well as the spirits which seems to be a new form of, like, kind of companion. I'm guessing you can only have, like, one active at a time, and I'm guessing you can only use it so many times. Um, But there seems to be a variety of what you can call upon to be your spirit um, in order to help you fight various things in combat, which is interesting. The world itself looks gorgeous. We didn't get a whole lot in terms of plot from this video. We can pick up a couple of things. However, from dialogue from NPCs, um, they keep referring to the character as tarnished. So we we have a new. So it's been like you know you're an undead in Dark Souls or in um, Bloodborne. You're a hunter, right? Um, in Dark Souls Three, you're like an um, Ember. Is that what you were, Ember Coon? I can't remember. Uh, but now we're tarnished. And apparently, 
Uh, tarnishes are being used for something called grafting, which not entirely sure what that's all about either. There's been a lot of hints in this video that has the gears turning, being like, what's going on here? Um, it looks incredibly open world, which is not usually my preferred, because my thing with open world is that it's usually populated with nothing, um, and that you end up just wandering off in a direction and getting lost and forgetting what you're actually supposed to be doing, and then you give up and you get frustrated and you quit. Um, but it looks... Honestly, like, open world in the nature of um, Shadow of Mordor or Shadow of War more than anything. There's a there's a, a clip, I guess, of them going after a carriage for treasure. And that very much reminded me of, like, raiding orc camps in Shadow of War. And I was like, okay, that's not bad. Um, there seems to be a lot of emphasis on having multiple builds at the same time. So you would be wielding a bow in one instance and then like your sword in another, um, depending on what the fuck was going on. And that makes a lot of sense. You want different weapons for different scenarios. Very few things can be a catch-all for all problems, except maybe magic, depending on how you build that out. Um, so that's nice. I like that. And the game also seems to be uh, implying a pretty hem heavy emphasis on agility, mobility, and stealth. Um, because of the jumping mechanic and the alternate ways of getting into areas and dungeons and the different approaches therein. But there's also instances in which you will be encountering enemies that are far stronger than you are out in the wild and you'll need a sneak to get past them. And I wonder if that mechanic is going to make itself known in different armor types or different builds where you might be a little bit louder and clunkier than if you're wearing like soft fabrics and leather. Uh, which will be very interesting. Like if my, my standard Soulsian approach has always been to sword and board, which is when I get a big-ass fucking sword and a big-ass fucking shield and I'm strong as hell, and I just tank everything. That's always been my strategy. It's very slow and methodical, but usually allows you to get through most fights without issue. This, the game, looks like... I mean, there, there are elements of all um, uh, From Software games present in this game. It seems like we're going to have a pretty heavy emphasis on weapon art, which is... Uh, akin to Sekiro and uh, Bloodborne. It looks like Dark Souls, like that kind of high fantasy and a lot of the enemies I would classify as Soulsian. So there are elements there as well. Uh, it looks like a gorgeous blind of everything, quite frankly. But the size of the map has me wondering to the length of the game because the map is enormous. Like you get a sense of its scale in the video uh, and you, apparently you build the map out by finding map fragments throughout the world, which is always exciting. Uh, I love stuff like that. Uh, unlocking the watchtowers in uh, Middle-Earth Shadow of War. That's the one I keep comparing it to, because that's the one that it looks the most like. Um, randomly encountering bosses like out in the wild is going to be exciting and terrifying. Um, the boss that they showcased here appeared to be a demigod, I believe is what they said. Uh, which is interesting for the uh, the lore of the game. I love those like golden trees. I don't know what that's all about. I'm thinking a Yggdrasil world tree sort of situation. But we will find out. Still no idea what the titular Elden Ring is. Um, but we all know what the Dark Soul is. So there you go. Um, and you are literally a blood born, uh, born from blood in Bloodborne. And Sekiro, shadows die twice. Um, I can't remember. Was his name actually Sekiro? I don't fucking recall. Who cares? Um, I never actually beat that one. It's the only one I never beat. Because it's too fucking hard. And that's just because the game was built around a mechanic. And that's another thing. Like, Dark Souls is built around blocking. Bloodborne is built around dodging. Sekiro is built around countering or parrying. I don't... I think... I would argue based on this video and I think what they're going for Elden Ring is probably going to be a blend of all three but if I had to pick something that the game is built around it looks like it's built around exploration with the with the improved mobility of the character and the introduction of mounts your character can do a lot more than it ever has in the past um, and with the dungeons being designed as having multiple ways of dealing with it you will be rewarded by your exploration. 
this this game I think more than a lot are really going to benefit from this because what encourages players more to explore and find alternate routes than difficulty and no game does difficulty better than from software dark souls-esque games you will you will naturally explore simply to not deal with hard bullshit or impossible bullshit now that can backfire and create like one feasible way of doing something which would kind of suck as long as there is more than one way of actually doing something and of course you could choose the harder route that is an option like in this video they showcase uh you trying to go through the front gate and absolutely getting land blasted by like some fucking ballistae or whatever uh so he takes the back route um i'd be willing to bet that you probably can figure out like the timing or something like that and kind of sneak around trees or whatever or maybe shoot the the ballista from a distance with an arrow um and get through the main gate i think that's a possibility i don't think it's gonna be an easy thing to do but it's a probably a thing you can do so i like that no everything about this was was exciting to me um it seemed i don't know if there is going to be more npcs in this world than there have been in previous games my gut says yes um because it's an open world and you have to fill it with something so i think filling it with more npcs makes a lot of sense especially since george r, r. martin is at the at the core and end of the day a writer and having characters and dialogue and plot makes a lot of sense in a game that he is part of its creation so very excited about that i've never been much of a magic user in dark souls games so i don't know too i can't say too much about the system itself it looks like it has a lot of variety um and it also looks like it has a lot of utilization it's things like firing spells on horseback to fight a dragon um rather than just like running around on the ground with a sword kind of makes a lot more sense um and so i might have to change up some of my strategies and pick up a couple of distance spells just so i can handle some of those fucking flying enemies that seem to be making their presence known in this world of elden ring so early impressions are strong i'm i'm not so much a fool as to pre-order the game but the the initial instinct i have is that it's strong and even dark souls games on like their worst day i'm looking at you dark souls 2 are still pretty fucking good games in their own way dark souls 2 is still head and shoulders above a lot of other games it is just shit when compared to the brilliance of the other games in in that area dark souls 3 is probably my favorite um simply because of like where i was at when it came out i absolutely love that game um i know people swear by bloodborne and it is a phenomenal game um but i'm i'm terrible at timing that's why i suck at like platforms and and high intensity gaming because i'm just like i'm terrible at it you know i can't aim for shit in a first person shooter but um so games where it's built around like reactionary like dodging and parrying and stuff like that i can't do it because i'm just not just not good enough so that's why i play games that are more more akin to my skill set um but i can absolutely play play your dark souls um and i will most likely be able to rock elden ring because there were some early reports i can't tell you where but that this game was going to be easier than some of the other games to come before it and i think that comes from freedom of choice in order to how to approach a dungeon think about it like if you if you circle a castle and you find like a broken window or something that takes you right to the treasure and that's all you care about and you can just pop in and pop out well then yeah that sounds pretty easy but you're gonna miss like you know the the all the other loot potentially throughout the castle or the boss encounter and stuff like that um so that's probably gonna make it a little easier the spirits are probably going to make it a lot easier being able to summon in support on your own like uh like uh what's the term under your own power rather than waiting for people to like answer a summons uh through like a soapstone i think makes a lot of sense um it's nice that the soapstone thing is still there so you can summon in other players so that that'll absolutely make things easier too um the magic and the the range that it seems you can have as a player is pretty extensive so there's a really decent chance you'll be able to kill most things before they even touch you 
Um, but I think there's also going to be, if you have that power, some enemies will probably have that power too. Um, oh, and one more thing I wanted to talk about. It also seems like this game is going to give us what I know a lot of people really love about games like this, which is a practical use for torches. In previous installments, there have been like one or two levels where you needed the torch, right? Like the depths and and the the like the um, blight town and all that shit. It's dark down there, so you need torches. Um, but by and large, you could get by in that in those games without really using them. You know, you can just turn the brightness up and stuff like that. But in this game, because of catacombs and dungeons and caves and all of that stuff being more open world, and I don't want to say randomly occurring, but they're gonna there's gonna be a lot of them. You're going to need those torches way more often, which I think is going to create a really fun dynamic um, of like preparing the right tool for the right job uh, and really having to think about scenarios and strategizing with different weapons and tools and things like that and going, okay, so this is a dungeon, which means I'm only going to have one active hand because of the torch or you drop your torch and wield it two-handed and now you're fighting in the dark and it's just like a lot of intriguing things there. One thing I'll be interested about is that I could see this game being a really solid option for having different, like, race options. Like, if they went the Skyrim route, right, and introduced, like, some fucking lizard Argonian class that I could see in the dark. Like, what a goddamn natural advantage would that be um, when playing this game. But, who knows. There was a lot of variety in terms of the clothing that was being worn, which doesn't surprise me at all because uh, fashion souls has always been a thing. Uh, and imagine in an open world game like this, it's going to be even more of a thing. So we will we will have to see. I think it's going to be open world akin to uh, Breath of the Wild as well in terms of it's like... I think it's going to be light on people uh, and heavy on encounterables is, is, is what it's going to be. You might not stumble upon like a small river village and they're like, oh, the crocodile ate our lawler catch. Please help us. I think you're gonna you're gonna stumble upon some some you know fucking giant river crocodile, and and deal with that scenario. I think that's what it's gonna be. So I'm looking forward to it. Uh, it looks awesome. Ugh. We'll keep our eyes peeled for it. Uh, and in the meantime, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. I know I'm a little bit behind the eight ball on this one. But I finally got around to watching Chernobyl. Remember that? Remember that HBO miniseries from 2019? Well, I do, because I just watched it. And it's okay. Um, I know it was like a real big deal when it came out, and everybody was like, oh, man, it's nuclear stuff with Russians that are actually English. Yeah, that bit's a little weird. How it's basically Chernobyl brought to you by the cast of Game of Thrones, starring Stellan Skarsgård. Um... Not that I had an issue with the performances. I thought acting-wise, it was pretty solid all the way around. Jared Harris did pretty well. Stellan Skarsgård did amazing. Um, degrading scales from there on out. Uh, Emily Watson, I believe. Yeah, Emily Watson did a great job. Um, they definitely took some liberties with the story, but I felt like it added to the narrative um, there's a there's a note at the end of of the the show and like the the like the Animal House credits where it's like where are they now sort of thing, where there was like we'll never really know the true human toll of Chernobyl and that's technically true, I mean the the radiation fallout from that effect is from that incident is still being felt like all over the world, um and it's never really gonna go away at least not in any of our lifetimes. Maybe my lifetime, since I'm going to be immortal, but for the rest of humanity, probably not. Uh, and that's that is true. And the show does a pretty decent job of like uh, showcasing the threat of radiation, um, especially in that first episode. Those people on the bridge when like the ash starts falling, and like we know as the viewers what the fuck is going on because that first episode does a gorgeous job of building it. It's like, here's the situation. We've got deniers. And nobody really knows what's happening. But, like, we all know. And the slow discovery of what the fuck. And when that dude picks up the chunk of graphite and his hand explodes. Like, all that shit. Like, it's it's an amazing bit of, bit of television, that first episode. The subsequent episodes definitely lack that initial magic. 
of of like the the realization and the cinematography I felt like was really strong there. I know it's a bit more dynamic and interesting in that first episode because it's like when it goes down and then the rest of the show is basically them trying to fix it. Um, and there are elements and moments that kind of recapture it, um, but it never quite gets back to that start. So as far as I'm concerned, that first episode is probably the only one I would recommend is like viewing. And if you really like it, then you keep going. But if you're just in it to see like some decent TV about Chernobyl, then that first one's probably going to be your bet. Uh, it does a, does a really good job. Uh, now, I won't be the first person to say this, that the show got some... I wouldn't... Now, here's the thing. A lot of people would say the show got some things wrong. And those things tend to relate to... Like, the, the, the storylines that kind of pull at the heartstrings in the show... I am by no means an expert. I just have the backing of like 30 seconds of Googling whilst I was watching the show. Uh, and according to reputable sources, who I can't remember, but I would trust, like UN, Atomic, whatevers. Um, the radiation in the show is not the type of radiation. So like there's a lot of stuff where people are afraid to be around people who were there, right? Uh, who were there at, the, or at like who were contaminated and were suffering from radiation poisoning? There's a lot of like you were on the other side of the plastic. Oh my god, you touched him! Oh shit! Oh god! Um, according to the internet, that's not how that sort of radiation works. Um, and while things like clothes will absolutely be radioactive, like the firefighter outfits, which are still radioactive to this day, which blows my goddamn mind. Uh, the people themselves, probably not. Now. What is accurate is that the people, the doctors at that time probably wouldn't have known that. And so I will fully believe that the characters in that instance would have been like, you shouldn't touch him, you'll get sick. That might not actually be the case, but I would readily believe that the individuals like in the heat of the moment might not know that. So I thought that was, that was fine with me. Um, and then there was like the invention of uh, Emily Watson's character, whose name I can't recall, uh, being this representation of, like, dozens of doctors who helped, uh, Jared Harris's character actually fix the fucking problem. It wasn't him just alone. There were dozens of people that worked on this. And then there's the other thing, which is that we didn't know before the explosion happened that those reactors were a risk, and that is also a lie. It was known. It's talked a little bit about in the show, but it's it's kind of presented like it's a big old secret. Um, when based on what I saw, that that was not the case, and that 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 threat, not maybe not that specific threat, but that these reactors were were temperamental, um, and could have caused such a such an event. But nobody could have suspected that it was gonna go like that. And what kind of blows my mind. There's this there's bit in the beginning where it's like, how does this sort of reactor explode? It's not possible. Well, it is possible because it exploded. And then by the end of the fifth episode, like canonically a year later, y'all motherfuckers figured out exactly how it could have exploded. And when you lay it out like that, I'm kind of stunned that wasn't made apparent that you couldn't figure that. You couldn't even hypothesize that that was a possibility. It's impossible. It can't happen. Are you sure? Because you guys figured it out pretty fucking quickly. What the goddamn fuck happened? But whatever. That's fine. Um, the portrayal of Soviet Russia, or Soviet Union rather, because it actually isn't in Russia. It's in Ukraine uh, and Belarus. Um, as being English is an interesting choice. This is clearly meant for a Western audience. I mean, you can't even listen to the show dubbed in... Ru like, in... Um, Russian or Slavic or any of those languages on, on HBO. Uh, it's predominantly in English. And while the show was, I mean, almost received with universal acclaim in, like, American and European audiences, surprising nobody, uh, the people of the former Soviet Union were not a big fan of the show. Uh, which I don't think is all that shocking, given that it does not really paint pretty much anybody in a good light. Um, Gorbachev is kind of an ass. Pretty much everybody who works for the Kremlin is an ass. Uh, that, that one guy who, like, disobeyed all 
safety protocols to run a safety test, which is the biggest load of irony. Who, like, denied everything forever is an ass. Um, and quick side note while I'm talking about this show's portrayal of all Russians being monsters, which is obviously not the case. Um, there is that bit in the, like, the middle couple of episodes where there is, like, three quarters of a million people. I think it ended up being somewhere, like, over 600,000 people were conscripted to help clean this shit up. Whether it was looking for irradiated material, whether it was evacuating civilians, whatever the hell it was. There was, there was, there were some story threads in there. But for some reason, the creators and writers of the show decided that what we needed to follow, the troop that we needed to see in action more than once, was the dog-killing crew. That was a creative choice that they made to show us multiple minutes of dogs being shot. I'm not here for that. I fast-forwarded through all that shit. I don't care if it's on camera or off camera. No. That never needs to happen. Did it happen? Yes, of course it happened. A lot of things happened that I don't want to see. That's fucking one of them. Don't show me footage. Especially disturbingly accurate footage of a dog bleeding to death. What the fuck is wrong with you? That is unacceptable. Never do that. So if you do watch the show, hey, quick heads up. There's a lot of dog murder in this show. Skip that shit. That's not what I'm here for. Anyway. It would, so that bit is unacceptable. It did not need to be in the show. Mention it? Sure. I got it. You do not need to show me what the fuck that's up about. Because I got it. I'm with you. I want to see what happened with that bicycle. But they're never going to tell me. So... Also, the show has an unfortunate habit of, like, doing things and then abandoning it. Like, the, the whole meltdown thing and the miners digging in the tunnel underneath the, the reactor. You never see what happened there. The reality of that situation was they did all of that work for nothing because the, the lava flowed in a completely different direction and did not actually penetrate the cement flooring. All of that work. The 400-something miners... Like, 200 of which died within four years or something like that. It was for nothing. They couldn't have known that at the time. But I would have appreciated that in the show. That that was all for naught. Because it was. It was all for naught. But no, no, no. As soon as we see, like, naked minor balls, then then they've served their narrative purpose and they're then left out of the show. This is, this is what I'm talking about. That first episode is really strong. That's a good first episode. And I do like the relationship between Stellan Skarsgård and Jared Harris as the show develops. There's actually some, like, character growth in those in that relationship, which I thought was nice. Um, but, yeah, the, the rest of it's just kind of... It's fine. I mean, it tells the whole story, but so does, like, the first five paragraphs of the Wikipedia article. Um, and in case if anybody was wondering, because I was curious about this. Um, number one, Gorbachev is still alive, which is kind of stunning to me but then again Chernobyl was only in 1986 you know it hasn't even been 40 years since Chernobyl um in fact Chernobyl happened I I you know this isn't all that impressive but a lot of people I know are alive now were alive then so it was not that long ago but Gorbachev is still alive he was 90 years old and he attributes the it said so in the credits here, but I also can confirm this from my own readings, is that uh, he considers the, the start of the fall of the Soviet Union to be Chernobyl. Um, because, you know, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, it destroyed 30 square kilometers around the site of Chernobyl, which to this day is still uninhabitable. Think about that. Like, we're still feeling the effects of it, and we will continue to feel the effects of it, no matter how many giant concrete domes they put over Chernobyl. That area around there is still irradiated as fuck. So, nuclear nuclear power, when gone, when it goes bad, it goes bad in the worst way. And it was thanks to the efforts of dozens of Soviet scientists to not only, well, I mean, they also caused the problem, but if it wasn't for as swift as the fucking Soviet Union would have allowed... To fix that shit, to fix that shit, millions would have died. 
the true casualty count from Chernobyl, from what we can tell, like within the, like those first five years, I think it's like around a like five hundred to a thousand people died due to radiation related illnesses. Of course, cancer rates skyrocketed all over that area, and like plenty of other people have died since then who were there, but their deaths cannot necessarily be attributed to the radiation poisoning at Chernobyl. Basically, the folks that got the worst of it, obviously, were the ones that were right there. Those those fuckers in the hospital where their skin just melted away. And at that point, I'm like, there's really nothing you can do for that person. You know, you can't... There's no cure at that point. They're just slowly dying. Couldn't we just help them out a little bit? Just kind of speed that along? You know? I don't know. Where's Kevorkian when you need him? Anyway, it was an okay show. It, uh, that first episode was really good. The rest of them are fine. Watch it if you want to. But I, I finally got around to seeing it, so... I thought it was interesting. Let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. So one thing I'm a real big fan of are those nice, calm, relaxing-ass games at the end of a long week. Things like Stardew Valley. Things like Animal Crossing New Horizons or whatever the fuck it was called. Which, as of this exact moment, I haven't really played in a very long time, but there's a lot of new content that just came out at this exact moment. So as soon as I'm done recording this segment about another game that I was just playing, I'm going to go play that. So in case anybody was wondering. But I just played Unpacking, which came out on the 2nd of November and is this cute little indie game from Humble Games and Witchbolt Studios, um, who I just love that title right the fuck there. So I hope they make more stuff. Um, And it's exactly what it sounds like. It is a game. I think it had like six or seven levels. Um, That's it. Uh, where you move into progressively larger and larger places and you have to unpack all the boxes in a bunch of rooms and put everything in not necessarily its proper place but certain things do need to be in certain locations like you gotta have the toilet paper next to the toilet you gotta have your paintings on walls things like that but you could basically put them anywhere on a wall once you find space Um, and the music for that game is excellent it's very reminiscent of Stardew Valley very kind of plinky plonky, very relaxing. The game is incredibly zen-like. Um, I know it's a weird thing to do a game over, but there's a lot of weird games out there, like Lawnmower Simulator, about doing things that are normally chores and awful, but in a video game setting, they really do kind of um, uh, idolize it, you know, a little bit. There's just something about it. It's like how if you go to school playing a Persona game about going to school probably not going to be super cool but when you're not in school playing persona is, then makes you nostalgic for school and that's fun like all the all the stress of like tests and like balancing your social life and stuff like that in a persona game is wildly entertaining to me um now that i don't do any of that school shit anymore uh it's just fun um it all depends on on where you're at so when you're not moving playing a game about unpacking evokes those feelings of like when you build a house in the sims for the first time um that's it, it it's just a, it's just a fun game very quick game um honestly i think it probably takes a little over an hour but less than two to air quote complete the game um you know not even all the uh, achievements but basically emptying all the boxes and putting crap in the houses kind of sums it up um and the it's interesting, like, if you, if, I believe there's not really a plot to the game, it truly is just emptying boxes, but there are hints and pieces of the individual who you play as, um, I'm, I don't want to assume gender, uh, but based on some of the items, they are more than likely showcasing feminine characteristics, uh, the, the character you, quote, play as, um, and based on images and certain like mag- like hints and pieces you get from the stuff, right? You essentially you start off as a child and then you like move in with a with your your dorm mate in college and you uh, end up in like a relationship and then you, I think you move into a house with some roommates and then you get married and get a house with like a family and stuff like that is essentially how it goes. But from what I can tell, this person was not only in a polyamorous relationship based on 
uh, there was there was an instance where there was enough stuff for like three people in the house, um, but there was like there were romantic hintings that that's what was going on based on some of the sizes of the beds, um, and then later on, I'm almost positive you end up in a lesbian relationship, and it's kind of amazing to see that sort of like um, representation in a game about unpacking shit from boxes. I could be reading way too much into this, but you kind of sit there and you're unpacking stuff and you're like, this is too much, like this is too many pairs of underwear for a single person. And it's all panties. So it's probably, you know, or at least people that identify as female or people that like wearing panties. Again, I don't want to assume sex and gender. Uh, I'm trying to be super clear about that. But it is definitely in that vein. It is not, you're not unpacking a dude's stuff at all, ever. Like, like the, what's, what's great about it is there's this one bit where you're moving into what is probably a dude's apartment, which means you're at the very least bisexual, the, the character you play as, or is at the at bare minimum bisexual. Um, and I moved that dude's shit like all over the place to make room for my shit for like he had spread out his underwear across two different drawers and you could absolutely fit all that underwear into a single drawer and because he tried to pull that shit on me i put his underwear in the bottom drawer because fuck that guy for getting in my way with all this crap and it's like it was a struggle to fit all your shit in there and there's this one bit where you have like your diploma for graduating and there's no wall space to hang that fucking thing. So you have to stick it under the bed because there's nowhere else to put it. And I was pissed because he has all these big fucking windows and this giant stupid painting in the kitchen that I couldn't take down. Asshole. Um, no wonder I dumped his ass and ended up with whoever I ended up with. Um, but yeah, based on the photos in the fridge, you definitely go through several relationships and you eventually end up with a family with two kids um, based, on, based on the end of that game. And like... This is honestly, you, you get the story air quotes based on the items that are being unpacked from the boxes and the one sentences, like the single sentence at the bottom of like each photo, you know? Um, and I think you get different sentences based on like which level you click the star button on to quote, end it and move on. Um, so there is that. There's a certain amount of replayability, um, particularly when it comes to what photo or which room is being photographed because then the sentence it will change i theorize um that that makes sense to me because some of them were fairly specific to the room that you were visioning um there are three save files in the game however there is also a clear data option within the settings in order to wipe the thing clean and play it again um i wish there were more levels because i love the art style i love the music i love how relaxing it is um, I, I wish there were more levels. Um, $20 for a game that takes less than two hours to beat is a little steep for my liking, but it's also a very well made game. The animations are very clean. The sound design is pretty on point. The music is awesome. The game looks, it's, it's pixel art, but it's excellent. Um, it, it just looks phenomenal. And I, I really, really loved it. I would love more games from the, the studio uh, in this vein. I don't know what else there could be. I imagine the inverse of this game, packing, probably wouldn't be very fun, but there's definitely space um, for you to to explore in that kind of like chore genre. I don't know what else to call it. Other things you know about your main character, a uh, and d nerd. Uh, you actually have a and d mini that you unpack next to like a D20 fairly often. And it's not until a couple of levels later when that D&D mini actually gets painted. So that was pretty fun. Super artsy, dozens of sketchbooks, lots of drawing tablets, um, that sort of stuff. Uh, they have a, a pretty good collection of DVDs and uh, video games. Uh, you unpack a GameCube, a Wii, a 3DS uh, at, at, at several intervals. Uh, way too much kitchen crap. The kitchen always gave me a lot of challenge. Where to put like all the pots and pans and stuff. Um, it was a lot. They use a loofah in the shower. I should go to loofah. I use washcloths because they're easier to clean. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. 
it's probably going to be like one of my top games of the year, which I know is kind of stupid. But my rule with game of the year has always been what games I personally play that year. Um, so even if it didn't come out in 2021, if I played it this year, then it, it is a contender for my game of the year because that's what that means to me. You know, it's not my favorite game released this year. It's my game of the year. So it's whatever I played this year. And that it could be unpacking. It could be Diablo 2 Resurrected. Probably not because I still haven't even beaten that. Um, but God, unpacking was great. I don't know. There's something about games like that. And I'm about to go experience like the Mac Daddy of games like that with the fucking Animal Crossing. So yeah, I would highly recommend unpacking if you are into that genre at all it is a adorable sweet little game and actually before i play animal crossing i'm about to check to see if that studio has made anything else even remotely like this because i want it let's move on to the next thing in the podcast critical role season three episode three i don't know what this episode is called but i haven't Named, I have an episode title dropped any of them, so who cares? Um, this one was watched over the course of a couple of days for me, uh, mostly because I was busy. Um, but I gotta be honest, I am vastly enjoying watching the episodes when I can pause and rewind, kind of makes a lot of difference. So I was, I was enjoying that. So last time, right, they're investigating a warehouse, uh, on the orders of Lord Esros, Estoros, or whatever, uh, so they can, uh, create a partnership and make some coin make some cash money and uh they they all split up we had sir bertrand bell and imogen following after a halfling named danis um and then we had uh team backdoor and team full frontal um long story short bertrand bell and imogen lose sight of danis and come back to the warehouse everybody breaks into the warehouse to discover that danis has been docking the books um, or doctoring the books, rather, uh, to hide the theft of things. So, evidence of wrongdoing. They eventually track down Danis uh, to an, an inn whose name I forget. Um, and it looks like Danis was working for an accomplice, whom we are not entirely sure. A dwarf of some persuasion. Kind of got a bit of a seedy character to him. Uh, and they, they bust on in there, but not before Danis does gun get offed. And we get into some combat where everybody gets right proper fucked, but they all turn out okay. Uh, but that dwarf done, he done did a runner and got out of there. And we're not entirely sure where. So we collect Danis's corpse and we go back to Lord Astros's castle and we're like, so here's what's happening. And Lord Astros is like, well, fuck. Uh, right, well, that's good to know. Thank you for telling me. Uh, here's some cake I've made. Uh, it turns out he's just a very sweet old man. And uh, he... It seems to be interested in the party and their partnership with, with him and his doings. And he's pleased with the quality of work that they provided. And it seems like they're going to keep chasing after that dwarf figure. So naturally, they get paid out 150 for finding out what the fuck was going to happen. With a 50 coin bonus for, quote, expediency. They all go and get trashed. They all go and get super slammed. Well, Bertrand Bell gets super slammed. Um, and... That was just a, an adorable scene. And then everybody goes their separate ways. Um, Ashton uh, goes and pays this dude off to go find out more information about Lord Asteros. Imogen and Laudna go back to wherever they're staying in the windowed wall or whatever. Uh, Orm and Fern go upstairs to go to bed. And then Bertrand Bell goes outside for a quick walk to find out where the goddamn fuck the windowed wall is. Um, and uh, Dorian goes to bed. Uh, it turns out... Old, uh, old Sir Bertrand Bell's bladder ain't as good as it used to be, so he does take a quick leak in a, an alley. And wouldn't you know it, who does show up is that fucking dwarf from before. Stabs Bertrand Bell a good couple of times. And it seems, as far as we know, that Sir Bertrand Bell was cut down in the street like a dog. Meanwhile, Imogen is having a nightmare involving swirling red fire where she seems to be having some sort of reoccurring nightmare um, that is incredibly well described. And the special effects for that particular sequence was awesome. Uh, but she sees Bertrand Bell walk into a storm 
and then is gone. And Bertrand's last words are Leftel. Which if you're not if you don't know what that is, um they are they were Liam's character in uh the search for grog crap. because um, he couldn't be vaxxed, but he was like a a patron of the, the Raven Queen or whatever. Uh so that was just a great little comeback. And that is the end of the episode. So it seems so that's what happened. We all knew that Bertrand Bell was not going to hang out for a while. You know, like, I don't know if the party knew, but, like, we knew. He just, he couldn't. He was two levels higher than the rest of the, what, rest of the party. I can't sit in my fucking chair because it's full of laundry. Ugh. He was two levels higher than everybody else. He had existed longer than all these other characters. It was a great way to kickstart the campaign, but he was never going to be a, a long-time individual. So, I think it happened a little sooner than most people were expecting. Me, certainly. I knew he was going to die at some point or just wander off. Um, and you can tell, like, in in his hideous revelry and the way he's talking, like, Travis knew, I think, on some level. Like, he had he had this thing where it's just like, you know... Sometimes you just gotta see the sunrise. Those were the words of a dying man who knew he was going to die. Um, so that was definitely a, a bit of a surprise. I'll be very interested to see what the fuck happens next. I mean, in terms of party balance, we've got a fighter, a barbarian, a cleric, a druid, two sorcerers, one half sorcerer, half warlock, and a bard. Unclaimed classes currently include Paladin, Wizard, um, is that it? Is it just Paladin and Wizard? Ranger? Ranger would be interesting. Um, I may be missing one, but I don't, I don't think I am. Just zipping through them in my head. No, I think that's all of them. If I'm missing one, I don't really care. But, it, it, he could pick an unclaimed class, and in, Travis has played... So he was a warlock paladin and with uh, with Ford and just a straight up and down barbarian uh, with with Grog. Um, I want to say he took a level in something else, but I don't think he did. I think he went full 20 bard or full 20 uh, barbarian. So we have absolutely no idea what he's going to show up as. He could show up as anything. He's a... Uh, Definitely got the freedom to make those calls. But it'll be interesting to see what's going on. And we are left wondering what the fuck is going on with Imogen. Clearly, she's got some demons, I would say. I think we found our, our like, first uh, deep backstory situation. Perhaps that's why she wants to go into the libraries to figure out what the goddamn fuck is up with her aberrant mind sorcerer. In case you haven't figured that one out yet, she is an aberrant mind sorcerer. Um, one thing that I, um, am curious about, and I don't know if this is, like, people reading too much into it, maybe I'm reading too much into it, um, and I'm just seeing what I want to see, but there are a couple of lines that are, are leaning me towards this train of thought, which is, I think Imogen and Laudna, Laudne are, maybe not romantically entangled, but they are definitely close. I think that's what we can comfortably say at this point. Um, which makes sense. They've traveled together for a while. But I think people are looking for ships. Um, and so there's a lot of fan art out there of uh, pretty much everybody being shipped with everybody right now. Because we're not sure. It doesn't obviously have to happen. Um, but it has happened in every campaign up until this point. You know, you can't spend that amount of time around that amount of badass fucking people without going, maybe... Maybe, uh, maybe Fern and I have got something going on. You know, something like that. So, each episode is is being fantastic. Uh, I feel like the storytelling has here, here been very strong. Despite the fact that not a whole lot has been going down. I very much enjoyed the ride. Um, it's always nice to start a, a campaign with some fairly minimal stories. I mean, killing Bertrand Bell is definitely a a fucking veteran move but it's it's going uh it's going quite well so i'm enjoying it um 
yeah, yeah, it's been a, it's been really good. Can't wait to see what happens next. And finally, on this week's episode of the Going Upcast, I'm going to tell you a little story about how I freeze my ass off while camping. I'm sure some of you out there are going, Andrew, it's November. Winter's just around the corner. What are you doing, you silly bean? Going into the mountains to freeze your bean. Or I should have said ween. Damn it. Anyway, um, well, in my defense, I did absolutely no Googling whatsoever about where I was going to camp or what the weather situation looked like. There. Are you happy now? I went over to North Fork in Skyhomish through Snoqualmie. Like, that was the route we took. It was technically in Skyhomish, but whatever. Also, I think Skyhomish has like is like probably my favorite town name in Washington. It's fucking great. Um, I was up there with my buddy Alex. We play D&D all the time. He's a great dude. Uh, and we had this great spot by River. And it was kind of drizzling on and off like when I was there. Um, it stayed dry enough for me to get my tent up. And I got all my crap in the tent. I didn't inflate my mattress until hours later to my detriment, which I'll get into a little bit. But yeah, we were just hanging out and chatting. Um, we, we, we started some, some drinking. I had brought with me a brand new, completely unopened full bottle of Belvini Caribbean cask 14 years, which if you've heard this podcast or any of my audiobooks before, you will know is my go-to standard for whiskey as it is one of my absolute favorites. Um, between Alex and I, and it was just us for the weekend, we finished that bottle off completely before the sun went down and I got there at like two so we got pretty drunk pretty fast the sort of drunk where you don't remember everything the sort of drunk where I have photographic evidence of things that we did mostly selfies and like walking to bridges and stuff like that that neither of us remember actually doing and then my favorite bit was I had two notes in my phone from that weekend one was to buy Alex concert tickets to go see a concert, which I was going to go do in March, which I did do. And then the other one was for him and I to go to Skull and Ballard, which is the Nordic Beer Hall, which we we're going to make plans for. I'm sure I had a good time, um, but here's here's where things kind of took a little bit of a turn. It was late. It was dark. I had not set up my sleeping arrangements. So if there's a lesson to be learned from this weekend, it is to do that before you get drunk, not after. So my bed was barely inflated and all of my blankets were up near like my face and not near my feet, which is where I really needed them. So I slept kind of rocky. I think I woke up at one point and took melatonin, which helped me sleep for the rest of the night. But yeah, when we woke up the next day, the snow level had dropped. We were up in the mountains, and we could see the mountain tops near us. And when I say up in the mountains, I mean we were near, like, Mount Sai. So, between two and 4,000 feet is where we were camping. And Mount Sai is just a little over 4,000 feet. And the snow level was probably 3,700 feet up, we'll say. The snow level was falling in real time. As it rained, we could see snow accumulating further and further down the mountain. To the point where, when I woke up the next day... Um, daylight savings day the snow level had reached our campsite and everything was covered in huge fat fucking flakes Um, and that's when I learned my second important lesson which is that none of my camping equipment is good at freezing temperatures I was fucking freezing my buns off in two sleeping bags and a blanket none of which are designed and my tent is also not like insulated in the slightest it's just a fucking piece of fabric that's got some sticks in it like complete just cold as fuck so yeah i need to upgrade my gear so that if i ever do this again now that i'm aware and informed i'll stay warm which is which is the so most important bit but it was a great goddamn time and very soul rejuvenating it was a blast absolutely loved it um and i also loved doing this episode of the going up cast it's uh this this was a good one i liked this one and i hope you did too and i will see you all later this week for more lord of the ring chapters and, uh, and next week for another episode. Have a good one, everybody.